thanks so much for coming. Just for those of you who don't know, um, these kind of sessions, which we have now two or three times a week, God help us, um, are uh, fit under the umbrella of what we call at SCAF uh, Culture and Ideas. And so we... Um, try and link as many people, whether they're writers like Nick or academics, which Nick is as well, or um, uh, uh, chefs, uh, we've got uh, somebody or uh, people uh, who are native speakers of whatever culture we're exhibiting. We've got a group of Chinese writers, actually Claire Roberts, the curator's um, suggestion, on Saturday. Uh, people who lived through this entire period, most of them, and some of them only part of the period, um, who were actually there in China. So for them, these uh, diaries have a very real... Um, hi, Brendan. Very real kind of uh, meaning. Uh, so, you know, we have things for children, um, uh, which we call culture for the number four kids. And all of this is the, uh, for me, together with the publications, uh, represents as important a part of the program as the artwork itself. Uh, if I only was able, for some mysterious re reason, to do just the artwork and for some reason was prevented from doing this, I wouldn't do the artwork. So that is as important as it is to me personally. There are extra chairs there. Sophie, will you help? All right, I'll leave you to it. Um, so uh, Nick Joes and I have been friends for an awfully long time. We're too scared, either of us, to say how long, in case we feel terribly old. Um, I've known Nick since he was um, cultural attaché or cultural counsellor in English in Beijing in the late 80s. He came to see me uh, in the Hargrave Street Gallery before this gallery was um, existed and um, brought me a whole lot of catalogues of, of, of uh, contemporary art from China and Taiwan. And I was absolutely astonished. I didn't think there was any contemporary art in these places. And uh, out of that grew, uh, I'd say, Nick was instrumental in igniting a curiosity in me. Um, I already knew from having lost my job at Sydney University that uh, European languages and French, which was my area of specialisation, was not going to be uh, the future, uh, my professional future in Australia. That w had become very clear. But what Nick did was he... I had adopted this new direction of going east, um, not east from Australia, but east in terms of South Africa, going into Asia and exploring Asia intellectually and visually. I'd adopted it for practical reasons. You know, I thought, well, if I can't continue with French literature, then I've got to find something else to continue with. So I did have Asia on my mind, but I needed help. I had no way in. And it was Nick who gave me the way in, introduced me to Guan Wei, um, uh, then to Claire. Claire curated the first exhibition we did of contemporary Chinese art in 1991. And from there, the rest is history, really. And that is 28 years ago. So really, I have put a, a number on it now.
So um, we're particularly delighted to welcome Nick because he has been so intrinsic to this journey. I'm not sure if it's politically correct, Nick, to say this, but Claire is Nick's life partner. <laughs> Sometimes people don't like it. I should have checked with him beforehand. But this is such a connected circle of people. Last night, Linda Javen spoke in relation to Chinese Bible at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. I mean, these are all the people that connected up in those early days together with the Queensland Art Gallery and the uh, Asia-Pacific Triennale people. Uh, we were a very small, rather odd group at the time, but we became and uh, me less so, but uh, certainly the others who made this their life's work, um, they've become very important, sort of key to everything really. And uh, it, it was a transformation that I don't think anybody could have predicted with certainty, although there were definite signs. And there are people here tonight, Dinah and various others who were part of that journey uh, with us. So, uh, Jane in one way or another. So, I want to start, I'm going to do this by asking Nick questions and let's see how that goes. Nick would like to do a bit of reading. So, we'll just see how much time. We'll uh, allow 45 minutes and then 15 to 20 minutes for questions and I think that'll be enough uh, and we'll get a lot of um, information across to you, hopefully. So my first question is uh, that, Nick, this publication, because we're really celebrating Nick's recent publication, BAPO, uh, which was published by Ava Indic uh, and Giramondo Press. Ava's joined us. We're very happy and one of his team here tonight to see him here. Um, this uh, BAPO publication meshes, meshes, my question is, comfortably and so seamlessly really with Chinese Bible. Tell us about how you came to China firstly and what your initial experiences were in China. What, what brought you to China first? Uh, it was curiosity that brought me to China first, but I was very fortunate when I went to China in the 1980s. Um, I went first to teach for two years and then became the cultural attaché at the embassy. And I was lucky in the two years I was teaching, I lived in a part of Beijing near where some of the artists lived. So I met them early on. Teaching English? Um, yes, teaching literature, English. Australian literature. Oh. And I did. I taught a course called Western Civilization. Oh, that must have been a... To <laughs> <laughs> a lot in the To the graduate students. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but... For some reason, I was interested in visual art from the, as soon as I arrived there and met some of the artists who were producing the new art. And that was at a time when there was absolutely no art market, not a, nothing at all of an art market for contemporary art. There weren't venues for it. Um, foreigners like myself who were interested in it and could make their apartments available to show work on weekends was, were popular because it was one of the few avenues by which the work could come out. This was the late 1980s. It was a time when many new ideas were swirling around um, in China and these artists were very much part of that. The reason they lived in that university area is they tended to be the children of intellectuals. Mm -hmm. 
Their parents were often professors um, of physics, for example, biology, aeronautics, that sort of thing. So they were part of a kind of interesting group that was always in the forefront of the new China. And these were their children producing this work. It's only 10 years after the Cultural Revolution we're talking about, roughly. Yeah, or not mm. even, not not even, even. that. No. Um, but it was part of the open door yeah. period. Um, and I was just very, very excited by the art I was seeing. Not, not me alone, there were others um, in this category. Um, and I wanted to show it to people in Australia who simply didn't believe that it existed at that no, time. As I didn't. But then when you became cultural attaché, how did that move? Well, then place? I had more avenues to yes. kind of um, to show it to people. But you had more restrictions, surely, as well. Yes. Um, the, one of the reasons the art was so interesting is that it was very hard to interpret its meaning. Mm. It was ambiguous. It was enigmatic. And therefore, it didn't come under some, some of the really tight political restrictions. Nobody I mean, quite knew what to do I with I mean, you it. see that still with Ai Weiwei, the mm. way he moves, that it's, it's, it's impossible to really pin down mm. what he's saying. He's had his first exhibition in China now, for those who don't know. Mm. And uh, he's uh, done something which, on the surface of things, is completely apolitical. He's restored a temple. Mm. Uh, from earlier dynasties, and you know, so it's not political, but the minister's by our way, way it has a certain yeah, stamp other to meaning. it. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Can I ask you something else, uh, Nick? Going to the first uh, story. Just before you do yes, that, though, just uh, let me finish, yeah, finish this little this narrative, thing. because then the protests of 1989 developed. Yes. And the artists were a key part of that. Yes. And in fact, they had a a big exhibition called China Avant-Garde in February show. of 1989. So before the protests actually began, mm. the artists were doing something very defiant, mm. occupying the whole of the main national gallery. Mm. It was controversial. It was shut down. Works were removed. It reopened. Mm. So the politics and the art were totally meshed mm. in 1989. Mm. How and long did it last, that uh, show? Just a few days? Um, yeah, I think it was open for three days, then mm. it closed, some things were removed, and then it reopened for another five days or mm -hmm. something. Um, but in that atmosphere of 1989, Australia also opened its doors to young Chinese wanting to come I here see. and study mm. in a way that was unprecedented. Mm. And Who was Prime Minister again at the time? Um, Keating. Keating, yeah. The hawk, hawk. Hawk, hawk. Hawk, yes, yeah, hawk. hawk. Um, because what that meant is that many young Chinese, including many educated people, including many artists, could come to Australia relatively easily in 1989, 88, 1990. But not permanently, they could... Well, that was... No, it wasn't assumed to be permanent. No. It was short-term study. Tell the story of... Now that I'm still on the narrative before we get to your story, what happened with Guan Wei and uh, how those letters we wrote at yeah. the time, yes. When I was... Um, cultural attaché, one of my jobs was to look after visiting delegations of Australian arts leaders. And there was a very important delegation, Betty Churcher, David Williams and Jeff Parr from 
who was the head of the art school in Tasmania, came and they met many of these artists, including Guanwei, mm. and they liked their work very much. And it was Jeff Parr in particular mm. who invited them to come on a short visit to Hobart. And that was Guanwei's first time out of out China. Of, China. Mm. Um, of the three who came, um, two decided to go back, mm -hmm. one of them being Guanwei. Mm -hmm. And then after the events of 1989, he decided that with his wife, he wanted to move permanently to Australia. It took her two years to come. She had some uh, TB spot uh, from spot 20 years something. earlier. Yeah. And, um, but if I remember correctly, Nick, uh, together, but you were the leader by far, we brought, brought Guanwei in on a special creative... That's right, special talent. Talent visa. visa. 492, yeah. I still remember yeah. the you number. You remember the number. I think he was the first artist ever to be, ever to be in. in that category. It's I usually didn't know that. gym coaches yes. and um, such people. Now, before I get on then to BAPO, and I skipped something that I want to talk about the title, is there anything else you want to fill people in on as far as the narrative is concerned? Um, because BAPO contains the narrative, but it's separate from the narrative. Elements of it. Yes. Um, just to say that, yes, yeah, so some of those artists came to Australia yes. and have stayed here and have flourished. Right. Yes. And extended and changed the Australian art scene Completely. in the They've process. Completely. injected a um, huge new... Uh, as well as on the Chinese side. And many of them um, have gone back now. And they moved mm. backwards and forwards. Backwards and forwards, mm. yeah. And it was Bob Hawke who, who famously wept at Parliament House during the memorial service after June 4 uh -huh. and said all of the Chinese um, who can, are here yeah, can, can stay. stay. Yeah. Arsien was one of them. Uh, yeah. 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 became very important. All right, should we move on to BAPO? Mm. Well, I, I wanted you to talk about the word. I looked at your introduction and I've, I've read the book and I realised it means eight, broken, and the number eight is, uh, is uh, uh, sort of auspicious mm. uh, for the Chinese. But are the people in BAPO, the people in your short stories, are they, I mean, I was reading the stories, I read it, before mm. we knew we were going to have this talk and then again in order to prepare for the talk and I wonder if they were all broken in some way do you think? Um, many of them many let's of say them. but just sticking with the title yes. for a moment Bapur which means eight broken mm. it is a term from art oh. it's a very it's not a common Chinese word it's an extremely obscure mm -hmm. Chinese word but it refers to a particular kind of art where the artist takes things that are broken, fragments, torn scraps, burnt bits of paper, broken bits of china, mm -hmm. and assembles them in a pattern mm -hmm. which then becomes beautiful. Like a collage. Like a collage, except for one thing, they don't use the actual things, they paint them in an illusionistic way oh. to look like the torn oh, pieces or the scraps. Did you or know the that, Dana? I didn't, no. Never heard of it. Um, no. It was Nancy Berliner, uh -huh. our friend at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, the Asian art curator who really kind of did the work on this. And when I first heard this concept, I really was drawn to it. 
Um, and was it a movement or just popped it, up at various times? It was a, it was a, a practice in the late 19th and early 20th century, a kind of elegiac moment mm -hmm. for the traditional culture of China breaking up mm -hmm. and then being reassembled um, from these broken bits and pieces, but so possibly in an illusionistic oh, way. So they were painters, essentially. The cover oh. shows one, shows oh. a piece of a fan painting with this on it. You can't see it terribly clearly, but you can see that this bit of paper is burnt mm. there, and these, this is torn, and this is a scrap of something else um, that have been painted like that by the painter. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a reinterpreting mm -hmm. of the old elements that have been trashed mm -hmm. into something new. It's, there's no equivalent unless somebody can think of something that I don't know about. No, Co collage is the closest, it is the closest, but it's not quite It's not quite collage. right, because collage is using the yeah. cut-up bits and pieces or the broken bits and pieces. Or you can think of a Joseph Cornell box yes. made up of those pieces e that have been elements. repainted. I see. How but this connects with Chinese Bible wonderfully. Mm. Yes. Um, well, because that, yeah. what is Chinese Bible, which you've all seen... It's 3,000 diaries that were got from a rubbish dump yeah. in Beijing or from mm, a flea from market, markets, yeah. collected over some time, that had been completely discarded as mm. meaningless and unwanted by their owners, mm. and then were found by this performance artist. Mm. And as part of making the work, he washed them with mm. his wife. As you see with the he video. He filmed them, made a video of the mm. washing, and then he assembles them in this pattern, mm. which is beautiful. Beautiful. So I would regard that as being a, a contemporary bubble. version of this bubble. mentality, of this practice I of I never bubble, thought of that, Lee. Um, yes. Very, very specifically, really. Mm -hmm. How um, interesting is that? Yes. I wonder if he knows of that connection. Well, we talked about oh, it when he was here. Yes, I see. Um, and what did he think? Yeah. He, yes, he thought it he, was quite an interesting take. Yeah. Had he ever heard of Bapur? Well, the, word, the two parts of, of, of a the common word. Chinese word, I so you put them together yeah, and people know, see you know what, what, means, what you're talking yes, about. I see. This sense of something auspicious turning to some a sense of loss and then being turned mm. around into something I see. some new kind of survival mm. and expression and of course if you take the concept further the diaries the in chinese bible the 3000 diaries are really so many of them and only claire and uh, sangye and others who read and speak mandarin can know this uh, they are lives lost in a way it's not just their diaries that were discarded. In many cases, um, the lives have had uh, were broken, mm. broken by the system. That's right. Yeah. yeah, broken by the system. Can we go on to one or two mm. of the stories, yeah. Nick? Now, double. Uh, I've got my favourites, which I'll come to. You know, in any anthology of short stories, obviously there some you prefer. Um, donkey feast, uh, uh, there are eight artists who are sitting around a feast and uh, what I wanted you to comment on for me and I hope for others who haven't read uh, the story, so you might have to elaborate a bit if people haven't read it, is there, there's, a, there's a sense in the story, for me anyway, of solidarity amongst these eight people who have had shared histories, but also envy. And... Um, 
there's ins- because they, you know, all had different lives and they're meeting after some time, there was a sort of uh, lowered and raised expectations. So some, you know, had, I suppose, everyone has high expectations of themselves. Everyone I know, maybe not everyone in the world, but uh, has high expectations of themselves as a young person. That's what's so beautiful about young people is they can go anywhere. Um, but, you know, it doesn't always work out. And so in these eight artists, they're varying... Um, realizations of early promise. Mm. So, can you talk a little bit about the triumph and the loss, and also about the solidarity in the group and the envy? Mm. But maybe tell the story a bit. Mm. Yeah. So, this is inspired by a group of artists in Beijing who were friends in the 1980s and were very much in the vanguard of this new contemporary art movement, filled with hope, filled with new kinds of expression. And then into this comes 1989 as a kind of shattering event in their lives, but which for some of them was also an opportunity because an opportunity to leave China and broaden their creative experience and expression. Um, Others couldn't leave or didn't manage things so well. So as a consequence, some become extremely successful, you know, world famous. Mm. Others don't at all, Mm. and they either live um, simple but, um, you know, reasonably contented lives Mm. at home in Beijing, or they become bitter, or they become frustrated, angry, etc. But because they were once together, there is this sense of solidarity which can never be completely forgotten. And when an anniversary comes round, 20 years, 25 years, um, it's almost a customary or a ritualistic sense to come back together and both remember the experience and even archive it, document it, um, but also reassert that solidarity even though not everyone is on the same level. So quite a complicated, it was, charged, very emotional it, you know, situation. You felt sorry for the ones that didn't succeed and the ones that did succeed, you felt how far should they go in uh, revealing you know, mm. where they got to. And why did you call it Donkey Feast? Well, that's um, this, is, this is something that actually happened. Oh, um, I see. One of the... The successful artist has established a large um, complex in the hills outside Beijing, mm. um, and he he was the host, so he was inviting everyone else to dinner, and he was initiating this archiving project. But it was a time of, and this is common now in China, extreme anxiety about food. Um, mm. Meat of all kinds couldn't be eaten because there were health scares around mm. it. Um, there's something which they call eco-vegetables, which we would call organic Mm -hmm. vegetables, but are expensive, but he was procuring them for this meal. But he had decided that the only 
edible meat was donkey meat because donkeys graze on grass, that's all they eat. Mm. And these donkeys are hardworking but have led kind of honest, healthy lives out in these hills. And so this was the meat that could be eaten and this was a kind of gift to everyone else, even though he himself has given up meat completely and now meditates and lives very healthily. Well, you've said the name. I've said the name. <laughs> <laughs> You're giving so many clues, Nick. Um, a lovely man. And I said... I, I set that against the, the kind of transformation that has happened in China because it's gone from um, quite, a, quite a hard, um, economically deprived kind of environment in the 1980s to now this sort of super um, economic power full of consumerism where you can get anything you want. So there's been a positive transformation, but there's also been this kind of environmental catastrophe that's come with it. Um, and in people's lives, these contradictions about whether the present is better than the past mm. or, or how it is. And the donkey feast was a kind of a sign of that for me in a, in a bizarre sort of way. I want to add something that you wouldn't know and no one here would know, not even Brian, and that is that Chen Xiaomin, and I haven't answered him because I, I can't look at the images, wrote to me very recently, like three weeks ago, um, with some images that are intolerable to look at, about a village or a town, um, I think I might have got the number wrong, but something like 300 kilometers from Beijing, where they, the whole town is involved in the production of leather. And that the belief is that if the animals are skinned alive, the leather will be improved. Mm. And there are children playing, uh, he sent a synopsis of what he hopes to be a film, playing in the streets um, with the howls of the animals uh, around them, not noticing, and piles of corpses and carcasses and the children immersed. And the reason he sent this to me is he wanted me to pass it on to Emil to do a film. Mm. I'm too scared to look at the images, let alone to pass it on to Emil. Um, I don't think Emil... Well, he's not a documentary filmmaker, but... I, Brian, what do you think of mm. this? I mean, after the one he's doing on Voiceless. Yeah. I don't... Oh, Nick, what do you but think you see, of that? Um, <laughs> But what's interesting about Shen Xiaomin is that he too came to Australia and he, he'd been quite successful as a printmaker in China and he started making art here and he never really connected no. with Australia. He didn't succeed. Um, and he, in the end, went back to China not having made it in Australia mm -hmm. and then went on this other trajectory. Um, with bones. He went with bones originally. Mm. And has been now extremely successful. And for me, it's interesting that I think what he experienced in Sydney, which was real hardship and a complete a kind of breaking open of his understanding of art, mm. actually is what has come out, come out in mm. China. Um, and this, even this project about the village mm. 
is a way of seeing things that he would not have had if he had stayed in the north of China where he was. So this, the migration journey and the kind of cultural exchanges that are involved in the lives of these people are very complicated and it's not one way and it doesn't end at a certain point. I was surprised at this. I mean, I had no preparation for receiving this. So I just... Opened, Hannah opened it on yeah. the screen and she said, oh my God. And I looked at one image and I thought, I can't. Well, you have that work of his in, in Go East yes, in, in the Art do. Gallery of New South yeah. Wales of yeah. the, what is of it called, mice. of the mice. Yes. Yeah. And we've got the other one, which mm. uh, Brian likes the work. And he wanted us to buy work in the early days when we were collecting Chinese art. But I said, I can't, we, we can't come to buying work with bones, animal bones. And, uh, and then he ended up by having skinned animals, but they weren't real. The bones were mm. not resin, they were real. Mm. So, uh, you know, obviously he was building up to some kind of transformed knowledge, mm. as you say. Mm. Can we come to Ha Ha Ha? Mm. Yes, and that's where Ava comes in. And, uh, well, Ava comes into the holder by Paul, but uh, the, uh, one of the, uh, my favourite uh, works in here... Uh, and I mean there I knew who the artist was immediately because I, I know him so well but um, it, and it's called Ha 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 uh, it's an oblique sort of portrait so unless you knew the artist as well as I did I don't know whether you would guess it I'm not sure but um, in the story the and you'll tell the story but from my perspective the potential victim who is the artist really becomes the winner and he becomes the winner because he changes the rules of the game. And uh, how he changes the rules of the game is by humour, mm. through laughter. So you tell the story. Well, you've, you've put it very well. I mean, this is one of these artists in, in Beijing at the time. And the, the secret police want him to cooperate with them and become an informer on the other artists and on the foreigners and the whole scene. And, you know, they will look after him well if he does that and, and you know, make his career is what they offer. Mm. And this kind of thing did happen. Mm. Um, and so he's caught mm. and he plays this very nice game with them using humour, avoiding their questions by laughing. Um, and in the end, they're no match for him and they leave him alone. They don't quite know what to do with him because nothing they say has the expected response. Mm. He doesn't say, no, I won't do it. And he doesn't say, yes, I will do it. But he leads them quite a merry dance mm. and they keep coming back. And uh, I think, I mean, do you think that might have been possible? Um, I really don't know no. in this particular case, but certainly with some people. With some people. Yeah, definitely. Just detour them. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Detour them. But what's interesting, actually, I was looking at that story again, uh, just preparing for tonight, mm. um, because people have, have asked me, well, these are kind of recognisable people some in these stories. Them. And yeah. I, they are in a way, but they're never exactly that. No. But what I think was the inspiration for me is not so much the people as their actual art. Um, there are a number of artists in these stories and I think it was the art they were producing that was the initial inspiration for me and to try and 
capture some of that feeling in words through a story. And in the case of Guanwei, yes, his work yes. has this, I mean, there's just something about it that is very funny, but also particularly in the earlier work, there's pathos and there's a kind of play and there's a farsightedness. There's a lot of stuff that's very hard to um, really put your finger on. He did a series really right after June the 4th, after the events of Tiananmen, um, which is mostly at the MCA now, of dancing figures making V signs. And they're dated like, you know, June 6th, June 8th, and straight afterwards. They're impossible to read because they're not a lament exactly. They're playful, but they're kind of satirical and sardonic and... Um, but they've got the V sign for Yeah, the there's pathos about yeah. the defeat of this this movement. Mm. There's a lot going on, which is... And for me to try and encapsulate those mm. complicated feelings, um, I wanted to write a story, and this is that particular now, story. the story ended up uh, um, through Giramonda in our catalogue, so you see how this is all intertwined, of Go East, which looks like this, the main catalogue. Next story, ha ha ha, is uh, mm. is a tiny little. It's it's sort of not on this scale, not in this format, but incorporated into the catalogue. So one can read the story by buying the book, mm. but also by buying mm. the catalogue. Mm. This particular story, and it's very nice to have it there because. I mean, many of the works in Go East and in your collection of from China have this kind of dark humour about them. I mean, the... And also they're using material that has been discarded and is re purpose, like the Zhang Huan ash mm. painting, where ash is the medium mm. of the work, mm. or the other, the one with the face going black, yes, the other Zhang Huan. Yeah. Um, Family tree. And mm. this, this, this dark humour is, is part of it. But and also an in, interaction with, with text in the artworks mm. and with story. Mm. Um, so for me as a writer, it feels very natural to then kind of re-engage with these artworks in, through writing. Mm. Now, um, I, I'm, I'm com coming very soon to my favourite of all, but uh, just before I do, there's a story called One Fine Day, which uh, in, in Bapo, uh, which references uh, Madame, I think, Madame Butterfly, mm. and uh, most of us would know the Madame Butterfly story where Pinkerton comes and promises to marry her and then disappears, goes back to America <coughs> and then arrives at her doorstep after she's waited all this time with his American wife. And this is a Chinese woman uh, with an American lover and he breaks every promise uh, uh, successively that he makes to her. He goes back to America. Meanwhile, she's isolated herself from her family, from her group and from she's completely unprotected. So... What, my question with this story is what, I mean, she talks about loss of face, which in, is a feature in Japanese cultures, as we know as well. But uh, I don't remember the loss of face in the Madame Butterfly story being the issue. It was just she was abandoned by this guy. But this woman is worried about losing face. Mm. How, did you 
and I, yeah. yeah, I would see that as um, mm. a twist. I mean, Madame Butterfly, the, op the opera, is really a Western story, mm. even though it's set in Japan. Mm. And so the, the, the tragic um, end to Butterfly is mm -hmm. a result of this, um, you know, this relationship which is not going to go anywhere, mm. and she takes her own life. Mm. In this little Beijing, modern Beijing version, mm. The woman is more concerned with sort of defending herself and justifying herself. She's not going to take her own life. No, um, others might, might say, you know, well, you, know, you can jump off a building, but she's not going yeah. to. Yeah. She's going to try and uh, justify and keep telling people the story and getting them to take her side. Yes. Um, and I see that as a, a very interesting... Do you see that as a Chinese-Japanese? Yeah, yes, twist. in a way. Yeah. Twist. Yeah. Uh, interesting. I expected her at the end to say, oh, God, you know, he's mm. abandoned me. End of the world. Oh, well, there's always another day and there's always someone else. All right, so I want to... The old socialist last song was not on my favourite list, but very, very favourite story was called Empress and Shaman. Mm. And uh, the topic was a, dipl a diplomatic service. It was about, there were two women and two men, a sort of quartet of people, uh, a spouse, uh, it, um, the women, one was a, a, a woman who lived through her husband or, you know, followed him, and the other was a professional diplomatic service woman. And the one husband was a professional diplomatic service woman, but they were married across these divides and a Chinese businessman. And there was a misunderstanding. And what it reminded me of from our French uh, teaching days, literature teaching days, was uh, the Guy de Maupassant story. Did you have it in mind, the necklace? Well, oh, not, yeah, really. not really. Not really. But, no. um, now that you say that, I mean, I'm interested <laughs> that you like that story it's because it's it's a very um, there's a lot of plot in that story. Yes. It's a kind of well-made yes, story really well of intrigue yes. and tables being yes. turned. Yes. Um, I like the I like the mix. I like the foursome mm -hmm. and the you know the the person gets who has a specific goal, gets what she wants in the end, but not the, not the way she intended. Mm. <laughs> um, why, what, what, what is the story that you would... What's your favourite story? Well, just on, on, on that story, because one of the things that this, the book is also about is mm. about kind of Australia and China mm. and Australians who are involved with mm. China and managing the relationship on the Australian end mm. and having worked as a diplomat, I've seen it, you know, at close quarters, as have others here tonight. Um, and it is fascinating material. It's not written about very much. And the kind of d distortions, misunderstandings, manipulations that can happen in that world. Um, very intense sort of world. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah. I recommend, if you start with anything, but what's your favourite story, Nick? You don't have to read them sequentially. I mean, you can start anywhere, really. Yeah. Um, the last story um, I'm fond of, which is called Diamond Dog. Is that the last and story in part two? In the book, yes. Oh, I didn't... I only um, read up to the end of part oh, well, one. well, you've got more. <laughs> I've got more because it felt like it was moving away from China. Which it does. Which it does. And then mm. it moves back. 
oh. in that last story, <laughs> which is about another Chinese artist living um, in coastal New South Wales oh. and his daughter and what happens to her. And that's the part I was going to read a little bit from. Well, so maybe, maybe um, just, just to give um, an indication of one of the things I'm interested in is, is how um, these Chinese artists sort of see Australia, mm. actually. In the academy back home in Beijing, he had learned to devise compositions according to the rules. He was one of the best socialist realist painters of his generation. Then one day, realizing that his skill no longer amounted to anything, he had decided to move. First to this new country, Australia, then to the little island off the southern coast. He found his own likeness in the sitters he depicted the lofty intellectual, the fortune seeker, the labourer who survives on the sweat of his brow, the emigrant, the immigrant, he was all of these. His art itself was a crossing, a method of image making that had migrated from the West to China to be given a hybrid function in celebrating a new revolutionary historical spirit. Now, as its master, he had brought this art to another place where history was different, where its celebration was disparaged, where the heroes were comic loners sniggered at from behind hands and villains were part of the crowd. He looked again at the face he was painting in the morning sunshine and wondered what ghosts and masks came between him and it, what estranging skins... The gallery director had a nose like a piece of ginger. In the photographs taken during the sitting, he had been laughing at the artist. Now the artist was laughing back, but he needed to please this canny gallery director too. So the laughter blew hot and cold between them as the artist daubed the face. Then suddenly he was unhappy with it. He threw his brush down and strode out into the air. Whenever he reached that point of frustration with his work, he would walk on the ocean beach where the waves pounded in all weathers and huge tides built great banks of sand only to gouge them away. The process fascinated him. Some days the beach was clean. Other days it was strewn with debris, shells and weed, bloated fish and drowned birds, plastic rope and bottles, some with Chinese script on them, driftwood, planks, trees rolled in with their great root balls lying stuck in the surging foam. Trees like human limbs torn off at the joints and stewed to shreds. Casualties, wreckage. Then next time the beach would be clean again. Occasionally a drift tree would lodge high enough up the beach, deep enough in the sand to stay and become a landmark, like the one by which he measured his walk on which he sat, legs crossed, smoking, looking out to the endlessly heaving ocean. The water was notorious for its deadly rips. Let other people try it at their peril. He was content to sit and admire, rooted to the tree that was his life raft, that would float him to safety should the water ever rise in a tsunami. 
There was beauty in that flotsam horizontal tree half buried in the sand, worn smooth day after day on the beach where it had come to shore, worm-eaten, gnarled in all directions, fuel for a tremendous fire, twisted, drifting beauty that he sought now back in his studio as he smeared the pages of his sketchbook with crayon. Uh, I've read everything you've written, Nick, so I, I can't say I'm an expert on you, but I, I have read everything you've written. And we did a, um, a show called The Rose Crossing in 99-2000 that was based on... Oh, sorry. That was based on one of Nick's uh, uh, books, a uh, wonderful book that I loved, and I read it in French and English, and uh, the, trans uh, the French translation was just wonderful, which isn't always the case when, as we know, when uh, something has to be transposed. Um, but I think you're, uh, it's very hard to write about sex, I think. It, very few people manage it. It's terrible on the screen if it's badly done. Uh, it's easier, uh, I think, on the page because it leaves more to the imagination. But I think you're brilliant at it. And... <laughs> And the story, I remember it from The Rose Crossing, which had a sexual element, and the game of Go, uh, I know because I've got this background in French literature, I've got uh, all these references that other people may or may not have, but it's not such a common thing to have in Australia. It reminded me a bit of, I don't know how many of you have read it, maybe even in English, but the lesson by Ionesco, La Leçon. Does anyone know that story, that play? It's where there's a teacher and a student student and she comes in and he's very, you know, bossy and full of advice and terribly superior. And then by the end of the lesson, the whole power dynamic has changed and that is the game of Go. So will you tell them a bit about that? Mm. Oh, that was my second favourite. Mm. Mm. Well, that's a table's turn. table's turn as well. again. Yeah. And a kind of... Um, crossing <laughs> yes. with people going in really opposite directions. Yes. So you have this um, Australian... Oh, Nick, talk into oh. otherwise. Um, <laughs> you have a, um, an Australian a professor of Chinese philosophy, ancient Chinese philosophy, who is uh, working in Shanghai. And you have a Chinese opera performer, um, a young man and they encounter each other at the theatre and a kind of sexual transaction develops between them, which in the story I hope is handled in a kind of a comic It's comic, way, but it but also feels very real, I Dark-edged, yes. perhaps, mm. um, as the professor wants more and more from the young Chinese man and the young Chinese man wants more and more from the professor, mm. but they want different things. Mm. And what the professor wants, you can say, is kind of measured in inches. And what the Chinese man wants is measured in dollars <laughs> yes. um, and plane tickets. That's right. And so it happens. It happens, I'm and sure. And they move to Melbourne in this case. Mm -hmm. um, and once safely in Melbourne, the Chinese man now has the upper hand, he doesn't have to submit to this, these requests. Um, and uh, 
the the Chinese philosophy behind this is a kind of um, yin and yang thing, mm -hmm. a kind of attraction of opposites, a sense of contradiction, um, where the tables are always turning. potentially turning. turning. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I thought the young Chinese guy calls the professor in the end, but in his mind at the beginning, if I read it correctly, the white hairy pig. That's right. Now, that sounded pretty disgusting. Um, so my interpretation was that he was on the make right from the beginning mm. um, and that the air tickets and the money and so on were on his mind. I don't think there was affection, but um, I just... That was my second favourite anyway. Mm. I found it funny and... Maybe I just like tables being turned. <laughs> the unexpected happening. We probably got room for another few questions. There's only one story that is because I only got part one is much longer than part two, so I got to the end of part one. Then I read one or two stories in part two, and they seem to be about Australians. So I thought I'll stop there. But there's only one story based in Taiwan, as far as yes. Why that, Nick? Just Treasure Island. Yes. Treasure Island. Beautiful um, island. Beautiful island. island. Yeah. Mm. Um, you mean why is it set in Taiwan rather well, than I in... I mean, did you... Uh, uh, what, have you been less to Taiwan or are you less um, connected to Taiwan? No, I've been to Taiwan, Taiwan many, many times. times. Mm. Um, and again have been involved with contemporary art in, mm. in Taiwan. Um I mean, one of the thing. I mean, tai, one of the names for Taiwan is Beautiful Island. Mm. One of Taiwan's own names for itself, which goes back into into history, and it, it is a kind of gilded place mm. as part of that. And so that story um, comes out of that. I mean, it 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 could probably be set anywhere, really. somewhere else. Yes. Um, I mean the. The kind of stimulus for it was that I was in Taiwan at the time of an earthquake and was on the top floor of a large building that sort of swayed. And I thought, yeah, goodness me. Yes, so it was sort of the earthquake. And in that story, there's an aquarium, a fish aquarium, and I kind of worried, wondered what would happen to the fish aquarium in an earthquake. I mean, that's not in the story, but as such, but. No. Well, I think um, it's half past seven. I think we should uh, open it up uh, to others. Um, I just wanted to uh, conclude from my point of view by saying that the themes that I drew out, and remember I was a teacher of literature, so this is, was my stock in trade, is to try and sort of draw threads out of something. There were academics. There were quite a lot of teachers and lecturers. There, uh, there was... Um, uh, what, what else? Were there? there were animals and human relations. Oh, my third favourite was George, the caged orangutan. Um, and I loved that. And, uh, you know, it's it, it, so much... If I... Knowing you, the book felt like it really came from you. Yes, if you don't know, you, you know, books... On the page, but it really did feel as though it was very connected to you. So, should we uh, make sure other people have a chance to ask some questions? Nick, are you happy? Do you want to read anything else? No, that's good. Yeah, so mm. oh, you've got the mic there. 
Okay, come on, guys. There are lots of people here who've been to China, who've spent time. Is there anybody here who's read the book apart from Harvard? <laughs> you have. <laughs> and you have, too. Well, it's hard to ask questions about the stories if you haven't read the book, but, I mean, question one, generally. One thing to say oh. is this is a book of stories, and some of them are, are quite short. Mm. Um, some of them are quite fragmentary, almost. Um, so it's... It's different, for, different from a novel. Um, and in my case, I started out writing short stories when I was first becoming a writer. And with this book, I've returned to it. And it's partly because, for me, it is a way to write about China. I mean, China is so big, obviously. It's impossible to write about it in its totality. And one of the things I... I mean, I, I learned also through, through working there and going there over the years is that the story of the individual person is really the most important thing. And, you know, China has a billion people and, you know, books are called One Billion Stories and all of this. But it, it is by telling the story of a particular person or a group of friends or some small incident um, that I feel I can write about the larger questions of China. Um, Jeff Parr, who I mentioned earlier, was the, the, the man who invited Guanwei to Australia first. When he saw Guanwei's works in Beijing on that visit, he immediately coined the phrase, a man in a billion. And he saw that it was this uniqueness of Guanwei. You know, in all those millions of people in China, here was someone, you know, who was, who was unique. Um, and everyone is, of course, but to actually sort of see that there is an energy there which is like nothing else and um, a creativity that will go somewhere um, is very, very powerful. But I think it's not something that in China is always recognised. Um, and the, the example I will always um, cite on an occasion like this is, is Liu Xiaobo, who is the Chinese winner of the Nobel Peace Prize in 2010, who is an intellectual, a literary critic like myself, who advocated for reform and change, but within the context of the Constitution, and for whatever reason, that one person's voice is regarded as so dangerous to the great Chinese state that he's still in prison. Seems mad. And so you can't overestimate the the power of that one in a billion. Um, and I think it's, it is slightly different in a system like that where um, the individual can't always express themselves freely. Well, all these diaries here are self-censored. They must That's be. That's right, yeah. yeah. they must have been. Otherwise, people would have burnt them or just not dared to write them mm. in the first place. Come on, guys, Catherine. Come on, think of a story. Think of a question. Think of a story. <laughs> Take that because it won't be recorded otherwise. Thank you. It's been, been really, really wonderful to hear and, um, and reminisce on some of the, the people in that. One thing, Nick, I mean, it's, a, it's a, a fictional short stories or are these... I mean, we're able to guess some of the characters. Are the characters happy if they recognise themselves, or is there mm. room to be unhappy? Well, in my experience, other people get unhappy for <laughs> the people in the stories rather than the people themselves. The people themselves know enough to know that it isn't really them. 
you know, they say it's an interesting disguise, it's interesting, you've used those details interestingly. Um, they don't, well, maybe they don't speak to me if they are offended, but they don't kind of raise it. Other people always say, oh, yes, but won't X or Y be offended? Um, and then you say, well, they're stories. Um, but it's, I mean, as a writer, this is a very complicated territory and how you also bring your own life into the stories because many of these stories reflect things in my own life. Many of the stories have a first-person voice, but the first-person voice isn't always me, usually isn't. The first person is a character called I, and yet some of the stories are drawing on material from my life. So how... You know, I manage that as a writer is quite, quite tricky. Mm -hmm. um, Jane says, "Does you manage it consciously or unconsciously?" That I suppose there are elements of both. That there are things that you're not aware that you're drawing on, which are recognisable that you've experienced. Mm -hmm. Um, and when you are conscious of it, then you, then I tend to be quite careful about disguising it enough or changing it enough. Um, I don't want it to be literal and factual. I want it to be part of a, a mood or a story which has its own logic and its own shape. Um, do you think you'll go back to novel writing? Then? I do. You do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hello, Thank you. Um, I just interested to know. Um, unfortunately, I haven't read the book yet, but I'm very interested to hear your opinion of between China and Taiwan. You say you've been to Taiwan. I just come back from Taiwan uh, a few days ago. Uh, many people told me they can feel the culture difference, although they're both Chinese and China. But uh, there's a significant culture difference. How do you feel when you were there? Do you feel that sense of difference? Yeah, I mean, I, there's there's huge difference. I mean, they're effectively different countries. Um, so it's like asking about the difference between Australia and New Zealand, perhaps. I mean, you know, there there's a lot of difference, historical and cultural, and in terms of the people. Um, I haven't been to Taiwan recently, um, so I don't know what the mood is is there right now. Um, I mean, in, you know, at the fundamental level, um, there's a civil society in Taiwan where people can freely debate and move and say what they think. And, of course, there are political conflicts there too, but there's a civil society that operates in much the same way it operates here. Um, in China, there is not um, in the same way. I mean, people do talk and people get together and they share their ideas very openly in private. Um, but there isn't the, the sort of structure in the society for those ideas to be disseminated um, in the media um, and... Even. Yeah, in, in, in art generally, yeah. If I may just follow up on that question. Mm. Sorry. Um, as a writer, 
you know the difference. You've been to the both places, and you know. But people in in China, they don't know. They've never tasted honey, so they won't know. So, but when you can see it, when you're writing, do you find your own personal feel feeling about the political difference that will creep into your writing? Oh, it does. Yeah, certainly.、Um, not not that I want to、um, necessarily labour that or underline that in the case of of China,、um, or be propagandistic、um, in any way. But it's just a presence,、um, and I, I think it comes across in all of the China stories um, that、Definitely. there are people watching, that you、mm. can get into trouble.、Mm. Um, That there's a kind of a weight、mm. um, on people. <laughs> Rose, but take the mic.、Mm. It was a very similar question about the politics. I was just reflecting when you were talking about the the the, the power of an individual in a in a、um, population of a billion. It's not dissimilar to what's happening with Gillian Triggs at the moment. She is an individual.、Mm. Standing out, saying something in a in a broader population, and my question is, yeah, how much、uh, as a writer can you divorce politics from writing? But I think you just you you really just answered that. It's yeah.、Mm. Well, if you're writing about China, politics、mm. is、yes. a subject,、yes. um, yeah. just inevitably.、Yeah. Um, so you're not even wanting to divorce、yeah. the two, but you may be looking at an individual life or a situation against that larger background. I mean,、um, in in a way, it's a pity we don't have the same frame when we write about Australia. That the politics are potentially less embedded or less sophisticated. We're still telling stories rather than embedding politics. I should also say that I'm writing about China, but I'm not Chinese,、mm. so that's a whole other dimension as well. You know, I'm an outsider, and I'm quite often engaging with other outsiders and how they interact with China.、Um, I mean, there are Chinese writers who are writing about some of this stuff,、um, contemporary politics in China, and they encounter their own、um, problems, either.、Um, Resistance or a certain kind of indifference,、um, and if they're working within China, have to kind of code code their material、um, in various ways. Yeah, yeah. Or if not jail,、um, just、um, humiliated or you know punished. In various ways, which often not even very nastily, but in kind of quite subtle ways, but has the effect of then kind of shrinking what they write.、Mm. We had a, a, as part of、uh, the culture and ideas round Chinese Bible, we had this、uh, woman uh, speaker uh, called Xinran.、Uh, Xinran,、mm. and、uh, you know she lives in London now.、Um, she was a, a Apparently, a very well-known broadcaster in China, and her special focus、um, is women, women in China, and the difference between rural women and urban women, which is huge. Women,、um, you know, having the one-child policy and what it means to women, and so on. 
And there was one very shocking remark that she made. Well, it shocked me to the core uh, in one of her books, and I asked her about it, where she went into a rural village uh, to get the woman's perspe- women's perspective from, you know, a very different angle. And a woman asked her, how do you do your girls in the cities? And she said, in do in what sense? I don't know what the Chinese words for this is, but that's how it was written in English. And it meant kill. It meant kill girl babies. And I just got such a terrible shock that somebody would say to another, one Chinese woman to another, as though it was a topic of conversation, you know, what do you have for tea in the cities? How do you kill your girls? How would you? It, what would you say it's about a very, that? It's a very complicated question. I, I mean, I will never forget in the 1980s being on a boat in the Yangtze and seeing these sort of black things like black coconuts going past in the water and asking what they were because they looked like dead babies and they were dead girl babies. Um, but, the, you know, the, the population issue in China is also a serious one. Um, I mean, another book that Giramondo has published recently by Shun Ke-yi called Death Fugue is very interesting. Actually, it's a kind of a speculative fiction about the attempts to improve the quality of people, a kind of eugenic oh. program um, with its sinister side, but also its... Um, you know, it's kind of policy-driven side. The thing that Shinran, who I was on a panel with also when she was here recently, the thing that she said that I took away and had never heard said before um, was that she, she thought that the population of China could come down as low as 400 million people by a quarter century from now. Um, through natural attrition, you know, one-child policy. Mm-hmm. Um, people now, it's an ageing population, not replacing mm-hmm. itself. And that so much of our thinking about China embedded in it is this idea of this kind of endlessly multiplying population mm-hmm. that can swamp Australia. I mean, that language is always used, mm-hmm. come sort of swamp running mm-hmm. down the yellow peril. But if you think that the population of China could actually decrease significantly, so that's from 1.4 billion to 400 million, it's like shrinking by a huge amount. But this was Shinran's... Um, uh, of course, by killing girls, you're other kinds of social problems. Yeah, there are other problems, yeah. yes. Of course. Guys, mm. we've got room for or time mm. for one, one more question. Come on, some brave and <laughs> inventive person. <laughs> Anybody? Mm. I think, Jan, you're going to have to speak with the microphone because only I can hear you. <laughs> Could could you turn the emperor and the shaman into a novel? It could be made a good novel. I think thing. so. I think so. It could be expanded. Yeah, one of the things about the way I work now is that everything kind of shrinks, <laughs> becomes more concentrated. Maybe it's a time <laughs> it's issue of time management. You like the Chinese population. <laughs> <laughs> You're shrinking. <laughs> 
Perhaps um, we should... Uh, but I like yeah. that about the short story, that you can tell a kind of big and complicated yes. story in a very concentrated Succinctly. form. Yeah. All right, Phoebe, one last thing. Take, take the, the... Okay. If I may, I, I'm very interested and intrigued. Oh, of, of course, you said as a, not a Chinese person writing about the Chinese stories. In a sense, I personally think it's, uh, you can be too close to the trees. So from the, your perspective, which is standing apart, away and looking at China and looking at what's been happening, would you be able to tell us a little bit more how you feel currently with the development of China and Taiwan and the world, in the world stage in that area? <laughs> well, that's the last question. I always say I don't crystal ball gaze <laughs> about any of this stuff. I mean, um, I'm going to China next week, so I'll tell you when I come back. <laughs> yeah. Nick, how do you want to end? Um, you're giving me the last word. Oh, you're giving well, me the last word on right. this. <laughs> <laughs> well, we haven't spoken much about the kind of the aesthetic qualities of the stories. No. And in the second half of the book, where some of them are nothing to do with China, mm. I would say there is also a Chinese quality about some of those, whether it's the brevity of them or the angle or the, the phrasing, the way of looking, that I see as part of what China has given to me as a writer over the years. Um, some different aesthetic ideas have been kind of translated. Um, and that's something I'm, I'm interested in. I mean, I'm interested in, you know, people who read them, whether they respond to any of that or, or see any of that? I or was surprised when I started the second half, which is really not the second half, it's the last third, mm. because it, it, it's not half and half this, is it? No, 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 it's definitely not. So when I went to the last third, I thought, oh, this isn't about China, uh, you know, so so I didn't I didn't pursue it, and I was surprised, and I'm sure you were surprised, or were you surprised that it wasn't all about China? Because you would have thought putting an anthology together. I hear what you're saying, Nick, but from an outsider's point of view, and I didn't read the last part, so I don't can't comment. But one would have thought it would all have been about at least about. Taiwan or China mm. and Australia or, or one or other. So it was a bit of a, a jolt to find that there were stories that didn't link mm. back to the subject. But you're saying there was an aesthetic or Well, that's what I'm trying to say. Things yes. don't need to be explicitly no. or <clears throat> visibly Chinese no. to be... To be part so of your uh, China to experience, be, really. somehow influenced by China yeah. or inspired... Yeah. By it, mm -hmm. and not just for me, but I think for for anybody, for anyone. Mm. Mm. Well, I think once you adopt a second language and a second culture, and I, I know that from personal experience, you can't. Everything, I mean, you are influenced by it in everything you do. I kept seeing French. Well, you've ref uh, you've referenced French writers tonight. Yeah. Uh, yes, all the time, and every uh, work I read, every story. 
a French writer left Afford mm. me. Now, it wouldn't leave Afford somebody else, obviously. Mm. So we all bring our mm. own perspective. Guys, I think we should put our hands together. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.